Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Wednesday, October 31st, 2018, and you know what that means. It's Halloween. Yeah, we're not going to have a Halloween show. We're not going to do a zombie show or something like that. But kind of a cool thing. Um, though we're not going to specifically talk about the subject of Vikings. I have a young man named Noah Tedzer uh, on the show today. He is the host of a show called The History of the Vikings Podcast. And dressing up like medieval stuff is not really what he talks about. They actually talk about the Vikings. But a lot of Viking enthusiasts, medieval enthusiasts, they do that. So it's kind of Halloweenish. But what Noah's going to talk to us about, this kid's 17 years old. Um, he has a podcast already getting like 50,000 downloads or something like that. Uh, again, the Viking podcast or the history of the Viking podcast, I should say. And, but he's also kind of the unschool, homeschool type, uh, advocate. Uh, he's a lifeline, lifetime, uh, lifelong homeschooling advocate. I'm sorry. And he's appeared on the school sucks podcast. He's been on the Tom Woods show already. The Dangerous History Podcast. He's most passionate about helping young people realize their unlimited potential. Today he's going to join us. We're going to talk about how young people actually have traditionally in history been high achievers and done more than we expect of them today. He's going to talk about America's system of government education, self-directed learning, and what his personal definition of success is. And uh, we're going to have a great show. I'm really excited about this. Because I tell you guys all the time, find your passion and go do it. And that you can Well, when you see a 17-year-old kid successfully do it, it's hard to argue that you can't, isn't it? So I think we're going to have a great discussion with Noah, and I look forward to introducing him to this audience. Before we bring Noah on, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one today, is BulkAmmo.com. It's, it's a simple thing, guys. Guns without ammo can't do what guns are supposed to do, so you need ammo. You need ammo to train with, you need ammo to practice with, you need ammo to defend your property if such a thing occurs, you need ammo to put meat on the table. But in the end, you need ammo for a gun to actually fulfill a gun's purpose, and you need more than a box or two of it. So get on over to Bulk Ammo. If you're thinking you need to stock up on some ammo, if you go to Bulk Ammo and buy from them, I promise you it'll be on your doorstep and delivered to you before you get around to going down the store and get it and see if they even have what you're looking for in stock. Check them out today, BulkAmmo.com. Remember, get your uh, discount as a member of the MSB when you do. Next up today, Self-Reliance Magazine. Look, guys, you know information is in overload mode at this point. It's very difficult for a publication, I think, to survive in the world of self-sufficiency, independence, and liberty today um, as a magazine in 2018 when there's 100 million blogs out there. You have to kind of stand a cut above. Self-Reliance Magazine does that. It's the information you really want in your life to be more independent and more, uh, you know, a better homesteader, better prepper, all of the above. It's a lot like, I remember before uh, Mother Earth News became completely politicalized uh, way back in like the early 80s. It was a really good publication. It's kind of like that, a little bit of a libertarian flair, but not politically at all. It's just... 
you know, when you talk about these subjects, you are in the world of true libertarianism. Uh, brought to you by the, the, the kind of the second generation of the people that originally brought you Backwoods home for almost two decades. Check them out today at self-reliance.com. They have a great website and a wonderful quarterly publication. It's something I really look forward to seeing show up in my mailbox a few times a year. Next up, let's take a look at this day in history. Of course, it is Halloween. Uh, it's not really a Halloween-y thing that I've picked out for today. We're going back to the year 1892. On this day in history, October 31st, The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes are published. On this day, The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes by Arthur Conan Doyle is published. The book was the first collection of Holmes stories, which Conan Doyle had been publishing in magazines since 1887. Conan Doyle was born in Scotland and studied medicine at the University of Edinburgh, where he met Dr. Joseph Bell, a teacher with extraordinary deductive power. Bell partially inspired Doyle's character, Sherlock Holmes, years later. After medical school, Conan Doyle moved to London, where his slow medical practice left him ample free time to write. His first Sherlock Holmes story, A Study in Scarlet, was published in Beaton's Christmas Annual in 1887, starring in 1891. A series of Holmes stories appeared in the Strand Magazine, and Conan Doyle was able to give up his medical practice and devote himself to his writing. Later collections include The Memoirs of Sherlock Holmes, 1894, The Return of Sherlock Holmes, 1905, The Casebook of Sherlock Holmes in 1827, In, 18, in 1902, Conan Doyle was knighted for his work in the field with a field hospital in South Africa, in addition to dozens of Sherlock Holmes stories and several novels. Conan Doyle wrote history, pursued whaling, and engaged in many adventures and athletic endeavors. After his son died in World War I, Conan Doyle became a dedicated spiritualist and passed away in the year 1930. But the books all started on this day in 1892. I don't really have anything to bring up. I just think that is an interesting fact. And I guess my, my this might be like a hallowed day for my friend Brian Black at ITS Tactical. For those of you that don't know, Brian is a huge Sherlock Holmes enthusiast. I'm sure quite a few of you guys are as well because we like stories like that. Uh, the, the person I'm bringing on the air right now, again, his name is Noah Tesner. Uh, Tetzer, I guess is how you say his name. Well, I'll ask him. Uh, <laughs> I hate getting somebody's name wrong. Tetzner, I guess is how it's said. Uh, but he tells stories, stories of the past, stories of Vikings. He's only 17 years old, uh, self-directed learner, homeschool advocate, and a kid with an audience now numbering near 50,000. He got there a hell of a lot quicker than I did, I think. It's pretty amazing what you can do today if you try. And with that, hey, Noah, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Jack. It's really an honor to be with you today. Can you tell me how exactly to pronounce your last name? I might have butchered it in the uh, intro that I did earlier. <laughs> no problem. It's Tetzner. I got it right. Okay, cool. I just I, I don't like screwing people's names up. I and mean, there's an old <laughs> saying: the the sweetest sound of a person can hear is their own name, as long as you say it right. Absolutely. Hey, man, I want to talk to you about a bunch of stuff today. We're going to talk about the school system. We're going to talk about homeschooling. We're going to talk about your podcast. We're going to talk about finding your passion. Uh, you're pretty young, so the story might be a little shorter than it is sometimes when I ask this question, but can you kind of tell us, like, how, how did you get to where you are in life? Uh, usually I say go back to study hall, but you didn't have one, um, and you're still kind of sort of in that school age range. So, I mean, I don't know, take us back to, like, you know, a few years ago, and you're trying to figure out what to do with your life, and how do you end up going in this direction with your subject matter and a podcast and, and things like that? 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, you know, a few a few years ago, I'm obviously 17 right now. I have always just loved history. It has been my my basically my only passion in life. I've always watched documentaries, played you know historical video games, collected toy soldiers, read books, done everything history related. And as I grew up and as I you know became older in my teenage years, I really started to sort of worry. You know, my goodness, I'm approaching that magic number of 18. What am I going to do with my life? And basically, what it came down to is I decided that I needed to be able to do something that I was passionate about so that I could share my passion with history, uh, with the world, really. And uh, I had always listened to podcasts, um, business podcasts specifically, and uh, I knew that there was something in creating a history podcast. So I basically uh, studied what history podcasts were out there. I saw that there really wasn't one for uh, Vikings, and the Vikings are super popular right now with the you know hit TV show, many books being published on Vikings. So I started the History of Vikings podcast uh, a mere seven months ago, actually. And the rest is history. What can I say? It's been such an amazing ride. I've been having so much fun, and it's just so awesome to see what you can do, what I have been able to do because of really the power of podcasting and just honing in on my passion at such a young age. Very cool, man. Um, so let's talk a little bit about history here and the concept of young people being high achievers and, and getting a lot of things done. You know, you mentioned the magic age of 18. That didn't really used to be a thing. Uh, no. When you look back at some like of the founders of this country and what they were doing by the time they were 14 or 15, it, it's dang impressive. Uh, I think I just covered uh, John Adams yesterday in my history segment. I think he went to Harvard at 16 to begin studying law. Can yeah. you kind of talk about some of the, the history of great feats that very young people have um, accomplished throughout time and kind of what changed to kind of limit that where we don't see it as much anymore. Yeah, absolutely. So you're absolutely right in mentioning the founders of uh, the United States of America. Um, most of them were um, virtually unschooled, I guess I would say, growing up. I mean, a fine example is Ben Franklin, who left school at age 12 and then went to work as an apprentice in his brother's printing shop. Uh, his teenage years were then spent Again, working various jobs as a printer, and all the while he was building relationships with successful businessmen and other men of means. Uh, and then in his early 20s, he became a personal secretary for uh, notable businessmen in Philadelphia and set up a printing house where he published his very own newspaper. And then at age 26, he went on to found the famous Poor Richard's Almanac. And I mean, from then on, he just became an American sensation. George Washington as well was virtually unschooled at age 26, I believe it was, became a um, commander or captain in the British military during the French and Indian War in Canada. And someone very interesting that had just been brought to my attention recently was uh, a man by the name of David Farragut, who was the U.S. Navy's first admiral. Now, during the War of 1812, uh, David Farragut was given an assignment to bring a ship captured by the Essex, which was an American ship he uh, served on, safely back to port. And he was wounded and captured while aboard that ship at age just 14. In fact, he became a midshipman on his father's ship during combat. 
at age 12. Uh, David Farragut began, you know, he left a lasting legacy behind as a member and eventual admiral of the United States Navy. So there's really so many examples of young people, you know, throughout history who were able to, I guess, make an adult income at a young age you know, serve in the military and in, you know, command positions and do so many things that we just don't see anymore. And it's really a shame. And I think what it comes down to is I think we've extended childhood, I would say. We have not the way the school system is set up nowadays and just sort of the general aura surrounding uh, American education today is we really dumb our children down in that we don't allow them to thrive and we kind of, um, you know what I mean? Like we, we don't allow them to thrive and we withhold them from achieving what they are truly meant to do at such, such a ripe young age. I, I, was, I agree with that. Yeah. I mean, one of the, like, I'll, I'll get flack sometimes for saying you're making a big deal out of nothing. And I don't think it really is. I think it starts with little things. I think it starts with things like when my nephew, started playing basketball, and he was like five or six years old. And I show up to watch a game, and I'm like, what's the score? And my, my sister-in-law's like, well, we don't keep score so that nobody feels bad. <laughs> and he's just like, what? And you go over to the bench and say, how are you guys doing? Oh, we're winning 28 to 17. They know what the score is. They can count. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right? Or like I saw this picture one time. It was around Easter, and they're having an Easter egg hunt. But they're having an Easter egg hunt in the parking lot. And they got all the cars out of the parking lot, and they put all the eggs out on the ground and so that nothing's actually hidden so the kids don't even have to look. And, and I, I can't help but feel that that type of thing has a, a – it, it, it's kind of like suburban sprawl. It's that incremental creep, and it just keeps getting worse because I agree. You were, you were on the School Sucks podcast. School sucks, right? Yeah. Um, but I'm going to tell you as a guy that's you know almost 50 now – It sucked in the 1980s and 70s, but it sucks more now. And I think that incremental creep is a big part of it. Absolutely. No, you're you're absolutely right. And as far as your your second question there is to, you know, when did this sort of really begin? I guess large scale institutionalized education or some might even say forced schooling as we know it today uh, really began in the late 1800s and the early 1700s at the height of the American Industrial Revolution. Now, anyone who's studied history uh, knows that this was a time when, you know, many sort of routine grunt work jobs existed, uh, coal mining, working in a factory, jobs that really didn't permit any level of individualism or critical thinking. Uh, most factory workers were nothing more than cogs in the industrial machine. Now, Marxist and sort of urban uh, utopian thinkers at the time really were f well aware of this. And in order to capitalize on, you know, the industrial capacity of the United States, really sort of came to dominate these these principles of forced schooling in order to create uh you know good workers people who weren't too smart but were smart enough to handle a machine in a factory to make enough products so you know there was an educational trust in 1917 literally called the educational trust and that controlled most of the administrative positions in American schooling and the first board meeting was attended by, you know, the industrial giants of the day, representatives of Rockefeller, Carnegie, um, 
major universities, Harvard, Standard, uh, Stanford. And in 1918, one of the uh, leaders of the group, a Marxist thinker by the name of Benjamin Kidd, wrote that the entire – the chief end of this group was to impose on the young the ideal of subordination. So it just goes to show you that that's really when uh, institutionalized learning happened in the United States, and it was a product of the Industrial Revolution. Yeah, and I mean, you mentioned like there was a lot of jobs that were, you know, kind of mundane, routine, et cetera. But a lot of those jobs were actually really new, too, right, yeah. because of the Industrial Revolution. So we all you know, we had people digging coal out of the ground for long before that. But right. sitting on an assembly line, turning a crank or putting two parts together uh, and specifically showing up, working, getting lunch, going home in that type of environment, that was actually relatively new, And it's yes. why the, the, the programming of education had to match that. And, it, you know, my understanding is it really comes from a Prussian system of education Absolutely. that was designed exactly for that purpose. And my problem with the education system today is at least back when I was a kid, there were still actually a lot of jobs like that in America. They weren't mm. the best jobs, but they were they existed. And if you came out of school with a with, you know a decent education and a high school diploma, and that's what you wanted to do, you could probably find one. And yes. that is, and we're still using, and it was outdated then, and we're still using that system now. You know, when I went to school, we learned ten key on an adding machine, right? Today, people have a, a phone in their pocket with more power than the computer banks that sent a man to the moon in 1969, and we still pretty much run the education system the same way. Yeah. You're absolutely right, and uh, yeah, you mentioned the pr that it was based off of the Prussian system. It really was because, I mean, for those who aren't familiar with you know military history, Prussia was obviously um, the kingdom of Germany that was responsible for unifying all the different kingdoms in Germany into the modern day nation that is Germany, uh, led by Otto von Bismarck. Now, Prussia had the most skilled military in all the world. Um, During the age of flintlock muskets, muzzle loaders, uh, a good soldier could load three balls per minute um, and fire them as well. Uh, on average, though, most could only shoot two rounds per minute. However, the Prussian soldier was able to do load and fire five volleys per minute. So that's just how skilled they were. Now, in order to create skilled soldiers, again, you really cannot permit individualism. They need to become like machines, well-oiled machines that are able to load their guns quickly, run really fast, and do what their officers tell them to. So the very principles that were championed by the Prussian military that you know created the Prussian soldier into the war machine that he was were, like you said, Jack, the very things that uh, American schooling uh, championed as well. Absolutely, and especially at that time, that's how military had to be. It's there's still a lot of that. I prior service soldier, but um, at that time, like the, the the unit was a machine to be commanded by the commander, and it was just this this infantry group is capable of this thing, so I'm going to move it this way. And those guys had to stand there and get shot at. I mean, they you know they they, they lined up and threw volleys at each other. So that's the exact kind of programming you'd want for that. But it's the exact kind of programming you're using for our kids today. You know, kind of on that note, can you talk about how school suppresses creative thinking? And I think we both want to be clear. We're not putting down education. We're right. putting down institutionalized learning. 
Absolutely, and that's that's an excellent point you make. Yeah, I am. I love education, and one thing that I think is learning is so intrinsically a part of human nature. I mean, just the fact that we, as a species, human beings, have been able to thrive so long is a product of our innate ability to learn. I mean. We invented the wheel when we wanted a better means to transportation. We discovered fire when we needed to keep warm at night. We're always learning. You know, you hear that saying, necessity is the mother of invention, which ties nicely into my next point, And that is that children will only l- truly learn something and truly get excited about learning if they need to. Right. I wanted to start a podcast. I needed to figure out how to use a mixer and a microphone and all the editing software or they're passionate about it. Now, school neglects both of those things. It doesn't really care what the child with the what the child, excuse me, is passionate about uh, or what the child needs to learn for their individual lives. Uh, each child is unique and has a certain set of values that they and their families hold to and their own dreams and desires, but school standardizes everything and neglects individualism. Absolutely. I, I completely agree with that. And, and on, on another note, I don't think that it's possible to build an institution that caters to the individual's desires. It has to be done in a decentralized manner. Because when I think about this, people say, well, how are they going to learn you know, math and history and science if you know, they want to learn to play a guitar? Well, let's talk about songwriting. Let's talk about historic. Because if you look at some of the great music, there's, you have to be smart to even understand it because of the historical references that might be in there that aren't yeah. overt. So then we're going to look at music. So music is math. It Music is. is math. The way instruments work is science. And all of that can be tailored, but the individual has to tailor it for themselves. If you had a school, and just to be fair to teachers, right? You got a school. She's got 30 students. Okay, well, this kid's going to do his science project on music. This kid's going to do his science project on going to outer space. And this kid's going to do his science project based on uh, you know, graphic novels. And yeah. all of that can work. But how does that teacher effectively teach? And you can't because the student becomes their own teacher in this model that you're talking about. And yes. so I kind of think we need to atrophy away from this entire institutionalized thinking. Uh, maybe for a lot of people, you know, I, you know I, I really love the idea of homeschooling, but there is no doubt that my grandson has benefited from the structure mm. of grade school. And, but I, you know, how long is that necessary? So like the structure can be established to a certain point, and then that student needs to be free up in a self-directed manner. Yes, absolutely. No, that's such a great point. And you know, again, uh, like your you know grandson, as you said, thrived under uh, just he needed more structure, which I totally understand. I, when I was younger, was the same way. I'm very scatterbrained. I do need some sort of structure, and my parents realized that. And at a young age, you know, my parents sat me down and said, Noah, uh, we're going to learn about this today. But they taught it to me in a way that catered to how I learned best, whether that be visually, you know, through, I mean, there's all different kinds of learners. So, uh, sometimes children do have to learn certain things. I mean, right. Everybody has to learn how to read. Everybody has to learn how to do basic math, but, um, parents can really see that in their students and, control how how they teach their children um, those things that they are passionate about in the manner in which they learn. I think some of it is the prophet hath no honor in his own country thing, that when 
Like, because I've been over at people's houses and their kids are all acting up, and I'll just go, hey, calm down. And their kids just stop. Yeah. And they go back to, you know, being calm and decent and not killing each other. And they're like, can you come over all the time? I'm like, you know, if I did, that's going to wear off. But I think for some kids, part of what kind of gets them into a willingness to learn mode in the education system is they don't know who that teacher is, right? That mm -hmm. teacher's a stranger, and that yeah. teacher has authority. And I think that can be temporarily beneficial for some learners. But what happens if you continue with that is the teacher becomes the ultimate authority. And therefore, everything you do is subject to the teacher Even though, in many instances, I believe students are often smarter than their teachers. I know it sounds arrogant, but I absolutely know I was. Right? Yes. I know that I knew, I knew some of the material my teachers taught me better than they did because they handed me a book at the beginning of the, uh, the year, and in a week I read the whole textbook. And with my, yes. my recall, I knew everything in that textbook. I was bored. Right. We're not, yes. like, so I don't need it. Well, how are you going to pass my test? Give me your test. Give them all to me now. Of course, they don't like that. Um, right. <laughs> they don't like that at all. But eventually I just got kind of left alone, you know. Um, but I, I think there is a, a lot to that type of thing. But the more we can get self-directed learning, the better, because I think one of the other problems with education, and I've got this in the notes to talk to you about, is we actually end up because of that authoritarian model We suppress the dreams of our youth. What, what do you say about that? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that goes right back to what we were just talking about. You know, uh, I just think young people and especially like you said, uh, to what point, you know, does that sort of um, authority have to last um, in sort of a child's education? But I think like really right around and I think parents, obviously I'm not a parent, but I think they would agree with this right around the age of, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, when kids really start to develop their own individual dreams for some of them might be earlier. This is a generalization their own dreams, their own desires, um, that is really where they start to, yeah, have their own dreams and desires. And I think that when you place a child in a school, the school, number one, doesn't care what your child's passionate about. You know, uh, when for the brief two-year period that I went to private school, um, I was super passionate about history. I always have. And frankly, just like you said, I remember we were doing a class on World War One, and I this I don't say this to be arrogant, but I do consider myself an expert on military history. I live and breathe it. I've read all the books. I love military history. And we were doing a class on World War One. History teacher comes up to me afterwards, and he's like, uh, you know, rather kind of, you know, not rude, but he was kind of short with me. Noah, why weren't you taking any notes during class? I'm like, um. Because I know everything there is to know about World War One. I. I know about the Treaty of Versailles. I know why it started. I know all the major battles, Tannenberg, Verdun, Bella Wood, etc. So it just goes to show you that that was my passion for history. But even though I was being taught history in school, it really didn't support my passion for it because it didn't support my dream to go – you know, do things and, and write articles about history for magazines and eventually have a history podcast and, you know, do all these things in history. So school absolutely suppresses the dreams of young people because they don't care about the dreams of young people. I also think they, and sometimes they do it in a well-meaning but completely screwed up manner. So, 
you know, we tell kids, like, you know, if, if the kid says, well, I want, to, I want to be a musician, oh, there's no real future in that. Really? Because a <laughs> lot of people do really well. But if the kid said he wanted to be a music teacher and, and, and work for, you know, 40 grand a year and then think he has the most important job in the world and is underpaid, they would back that, right? So th that right. type of thing, I think, is, is, yeah. is very short-sighted. Like, I, I have this workshop that's going to go on next week. I'll have 70 people here at my house. There's a guy going to show up named Cole Reiser, play a concert on Thursday night. You know, he has a couple albums out and stuff like that, but he isn't signed by a record label. He's not selling a bunch of records and making money. But he'll make 600 bucks to play a show here. And he, yeah. he plays four to six shows a week. That's better money than most of the people that would tell a kid that had a dream about making music that there wasn't a future in it. And all it is is he's out hustling and he's, he's selling himself and his style of music to cater to people like me that want somebody, you know, that's actually good to show up and play for, you know, 50 to 100 people. Yeah. And, and, and so he's not making the barroom circuit. He's He's got customers. Yes. You, you have a, a – if you want, I, I can tell you if you keep building what you're doing, you have a career in basically talk radio in the new, you know, web version thereof. And it's the same thing I've done. I make a solid six-figure income with what I do. I don't apologize for that. You know, I'm, I'm upfront about it because I want other people to know they can do it too if that's what they want to do. What was the, the, the path for me when I was your age if I wanted to do what both of us do now? Go to college, get a degree in broadcasting, slap <laughs> coffee for some jerk for six months as an intern, beg for a 3 a.m. spot, and maybe make it into radio. Instead, I picked up a $30 recorder and a headset and started doing a show on my car, and today 200,000 people a day listen to it, right? So you took a, a, a kind of a different, like by the time you started, it was a lot more like, how do you do a podcast? Like you said, there was all types of information. Yeah. You know, I actually had to figure out how to do it for a client that we had at my company, right? So I was like, why don't I do it myself? But either of us were able to take something we were passionate about, use a talent for speaking, and just do it. And there has never been a time in history where that's been more true, and we still have so-called educators telling our children, this is the only path that leads to financial success. While that financial success is being weakened every single day, and the value of the vaulted degree, while the cost keeps going up, the value goes down. When I was in traditional business, we had a technical recruiting company. I was involved in all the chambers of commerce and things like that. I talked to a guy one day at a, a chamber meeting, and he said, you know, maybe you can help us. And he told me they were looking for customer service reps. And I'm like, that's a little below our typical grade. We usually do more of specialized placement. But, you know, with 50, if, if we can have the whole contract, we can find them for you. What do they need? So he leads, leads off, you know, with all these things they need. And he says a bachelor's degree. I'm like, they need a bachelor's degree to talk, answer the phone and read a technical manual to a customer? <laughs> Right. And this is what this man said to me. He looked me straight in the eye and he said, there are so many people with bachelor's degrees right now that there's no reason not to have that as a requirement, and at least we know if they start something, they can complete it. Oh, my God. That's the value of a bachelor's degree? Right. I mean, and people are paying hundred grand to get a degree or fifty grand to get a degree so that they can check that box? In a world where, as you said, you want to learn something, go to YouTube and start learning. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. No, and for anyone – and I'm not hating on teachers. I'm, I'm really not. But for any young people that may be listening, honestly, like 
I don't know the background of every single teacher. I just know the background of teachers that I've seen and observed over my life. And honestly, like a lot of teachers are basically the least qualified people to tell you what you are capable of doing with your life. Uh, these are people who were great A high school students uh, and then ended up going to college to get a degree in teaching and then teaching – uh, just, you know, and then reliving basically their school experience as a teacher. So I absolutely agree with everything you said, Jack. It, in the age of the internet, this is such a brilliant time because you can do, never has education to learn anything that you wanted to, uh, been more accessible. Like you can seriously do anything that you want to. You can start something and make money at it. Who knew that I would be able to, you know, get a free cruise to Scandinavia next year? <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, Thanks, man. That's because awesome. I talked about Vikings every week. That, that is that is absolutely badass. And, and uh, think about this. You know what your job is, and what my job is. We are teachers. Yeah, that's what we do. We are teachers. So when I hear how underpaid teachers are, I'm like, well, if you're really good, why don't you teach in the private sector? And they always think that means what private school. No, the private sector. Go if you can actually teach. Pick something you're passionate about. Get a few thousand people listening to you because, I mean, the, the revenue model I teach is – are you familiar with the thousand true fans model? Absolutely. Right? So the thousand true fans model for audience members that maybe are not familiar with it, if you get a thousand people that love you enough to spend one day's wages on what you do a year, you have effectively basically a three times annual average income income. Mm -hmm. that's, that's where you end up. You should be able to make a living off of just a th – now, that doesn't mean you have a 1,000 people that pay attention to you. That means out of your group, you have a 1,000 super fans that whatever you put out, they will invest in it because they're investing in you. Anybody can mimic that. That came out of the record industry, but that can be done anywhere. And so if you're actually good, go do it. And I think a lot of these teachers, they are good as they are measured, but that mm -hmm. doesn't mean they're good teachers. Uh, yeah. I've known some good teachers, and the good teachers I know pretty much took the rule book and threw it out, and I think that's why the 80s and 70s were a little better, because those teachers today get fired. Yeah. That, that's what happens. We had one teacher, he was a PhD that taught high school history. His name was Dr. Sakavich, and every lesson began with this, you got 40 terms. And then he would teach, and he didn't even touch the book. He would lecture. The test was, you had to match the terms but then explain the correlation. Hmm. Additionally, there were multiple terms that could have correlated. It wasn't this and this are the answer. It was as long as you can make all, as long as you can make 20 connections and explain the correlation all 20, you're right. That is actually a very difficult test compared to what most tests are like. Yeah. He gave so many A's, he got reviewed because they thought too many people were getting A's and what he was teaching was too easy. Wow. The people that did the reviews without him teaching them couldn't pass a test. <laughs> but I, I do. I think he would get he would get fired today. I'm sure he's long since retired, you know. Yes. Yeah. But that that is a good teacher. And yeah. so what teachers are asked and it's not their fault. What they're asked to do today is here's what you will be teaching, here's how you shall be teaching it, and this is what you need to make your kids do. And, mm -hmm. and I'm sorry, that's not teaching. I could yeah. literally get anybody to do that. No degree is required to do that. In theory, this is how I feel. A fifth grader that got straight A's should be able to teach the fourth grade. Yes. Right? Yes. And didn't they used to? 
Isn't yeah. that how the one-room schools work? The eighth graders turned around and taught the seventh graders who turned around and taught the sixth graders? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and that's why I think they were more effective because you learn best through teaching, right? You, you really teach, do. Go ahead. Oh, yeah, I was just going to say, no, that's so that's such an excellent point. You really do learn best through teaching. Uh, believe it or not, so I started my podcast, The History of Vikings, seven months ago. I literally knew nothing about uh, the Viking Age or Scandinavian history when I started. I just loved history. But as I built the show up and interviewed scholars, um, you know, sort of flipped through their books, I became, you know, very knowledgeable. So because I was, you know, broadcasting uh, basically history presentations to thousands of people every week. So you really do learn best by teaching. Well, you just made a valid point there. So you loved history, but this aspect you didn't know anything about, but it wasn't a hurdle because all you had to do was go gather the information and then present it to people. Mm -hmm. And as you did that, you become more and more knowledgeable, as does your audience, and you'll I'll tell you in time, you'll start to get an incredible feedback loop where the audience becomes the number one investigation tool you have. Mm -hmm. And they, they keep feeding that information to you. And people say, well, you'll run out of information to talk about. No, you won't. No, yeah. you won't. You never will run out of information in any kind of in-depth uh, topic like you did. But what you did from an entrepreneurial standpoint is you identified a niche, an underserved niche. And that made building your market really easy to do because you're good. Now, you can do everything right and suck, and then it's not going to matter. But I think anybody can develop the skill of knowing how to communicate if that's what they want to do. Yes. No, so, absolutely. Go ahead, go ahead. Oh, yeah, no, I was just going to say that's a really good point. And yeah, if you can, again, if there's so much, I guess really, uh, again, from an entrepreneurial standpoint – there is so much money in teaching someone to do something. I mean, I've often thought, what if I taught people how to podcast? And I get it. There's lots of people that do that today, but I feel that nobody can break it down good enough for people who, I mean, I was hard pressed. It took me two hours literally to hear myself in my microphone when I first bought my mixer and plugged in my mic to that. And I was on YouTube all day that day. So if you can teach someone how to do something, I mean, that is how you make lots of money. Absolutely. Because people will pay for knowledge to shortcut the path. Yes, you can learn on your own, but if you can make something step-by-step -step, kind of snap together, then people can get up and running much faster, and then what's your time value? That, that, that's the big thing is what is the value of your time? Um, that said, we got a lot of young people in this audience. I think most people would be surprised at how many you know teens and even younger we have listening to this show once in a while. Um, a lot of them are in school. A lot of them are homeschool. a huge homeschool contingent in the audience, but a lot of them are in school. They're in this situation. They know it sucks, too. How can yeah. they survive school? Most of them can't just drop out. How can they overcome the mindset that's placed the interests of others above their own? Mm, that's awesome. And that's awesome that you have so many young people listening. Um, seriously, for those of you who are listening to me right now that are you know, a teenager or, or just around my age of 17, uh, that's super awesome that you're listening to this podcast. But you know, that's such a great question, and I think what it comes down to is you have to do what you're passionate about. If you are truly passionate about something, you will make the time to do it. It doesn't matter if you have to work a job, go to school, etc., etc. You will make the time to do it. So despite being forced to go to school, 
do what you're passionate about anyways, because truly that is the biggest, I guess, middle finger, if I'm allowed to be frank, to the school system, is succeeding in what you're passionate about. Uh, starting something, sharing your knowledge, sharing your passion with the world. I encourage you all to find that in well, I don't know what I'm passionate about. What do you spend a lot of time doing and what do you enjoy doing? Maybe you enjoy playing video games. I know a lot of people like doing that. Start a YouTube channel. Uh, teach people to become good at those video games that you enjoy playing and that you're good at. It's really just as simple as that. So get through school and then you will have more time to – even more time to really do what you're passionate about. You know, and so that's a perfect example too, the video game thing. I've heard people come down on young people all the time that say they want to you know, do some of the video games. Because the person thinks, oh, they just mean they want to play video games. Well, the video game market in the United States, the global market, I'm sorry, for the year 2017 was $121 billion. Right? Yeah. Don't tell me there's not an opportunity in a $120 billion industry that's one of the rapidest growing industries in the world And video games are all moving toward virtual reality, so mm. that path is, is a VR path, which is going to have applications that exceed the video game market itself. So we're literally steering kids away from some of the best career choices they could be making right now, because you know working in a grocery store, that ain't going to happen in 10 years. You, you, no. You're going to walk in and, and walk out with your stuff. You're not going to talk to anybody. right? So, yeah. and, and, and so we're, we're telling kids, well, that's a good starter job. Well, maybe if you just need some money, but you know, learning to program games, learning to program virtual reality, that's a future. And yeah. so, so the thing in your notes you hear you, you talk is, uh, or say, say to me in the notes here, that these kids in school are basically playing an actor in someone else's script. I think that's a really great way to put that. So mm. how do you th feel that these young people can break that and take charge of their own education today. Mm, absolutely, yeah. Uh, in life, I think one of the most noble things that somebody can do in life is to not become an actor in someone else's script and indeed write their own script. So first and foremost, you have to realize, don't take this whole school system seriously. Uh, you know, honestly, seriously, don't I take got you. it seriously. Uh, Grades are arbitrary unless you want to go to college and, again, sort of play the game of college and spend tens and tens of thousands of dollars and graduate with a degree, which I get. Some of you listening want to be doctors, lawyers, engineers. That's awesome. I highly encourage you to do that. Um, I certainly you know, want a doctor who is qualified. But don't take school seriously in that don't beat yourself up if you fail a test because – It really comes down to do you know the information that you will need to live a successful life? That's it. That's literally it. Um, I know all of the information that I need to succeed in my life. I know, you know, I'm going to be self-publishing a book about Norse mythology next month. I know how to do that. I know how to write in a way that is appealing to people. I know how to break complicated uh, poetry down so that people can understand it easier. But – Don't take grades and everything too seriously. Um, if you want to succeed at that and you, you truly do want to go off to college, by all means, follow your passion. But for those of you who don't, in the meantime, you can be doing so much and you can be doing anything that you want to write your own script and live a successful life that's successful on your terms. 
Well, I think that's really an important view for people to take in. And I know there's a few people, probably more than a few, that cringe when you said don't take school seriously. It's hard for me to take something seriously that the average person that comes out of it with straight A's, if you put them back in their, their seat when they were in 11th grade and gave them their final exam from all their core courses, let's say 15 years after they left school, they couldn't pass it. No. Right? They couldn't. So how important was it? And, and, and this person 15 years later might be a multi-six-figure earner that is you know, in the world of economics and finance and investing management. How much did they need to know, you know early French literature or whatever it was that they took? And the answer is obviously not very much. Because I'm kind of back to that core, that trivium core of education of grammar, grammar, rhetoric, and logic and knowing how to read, knowing basic math, basic science. You put that together, and then that person can tailor that education to meet the needs of their, their, their dreams and their desires. They say, well, what if they change their mind and they want to know how to do X? Well, then they'll learn that then, mm -hmm. right? They'll learn that then. And, 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 and my math teachers who told me I wouldn't have a calculator everywhere I go, you were wrong. Right? I mean, you're just wrong. You know, yeah. I don't have a calculator. I have a computer everywhere I go now. You mm -hmm. know, that, 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 that blows away the computers that were in our computer, you know, our first computer labs. Uh, it, it, it's really a different world that we live in today. And I just don't think the people in that industry, and it, that's the big thing. It's an industry. They haven't caught up with the reality of the new world. You can, you can take the same methodology and, and add a computer to it or a projector screen to it or something, but it's still the same model. It still has not changed. Mm. Absolutely. No. Uh, yeah. And that's such a great point about calculators because people, of course, do walk around with calculators nowadays. But it, it just goes to show you, like, again, that that old saying, uh, you know, necessity is the mother of invention, meaning that people didn't invent things until they needed them. Well, people don't need to learn things until they need them. Uh, <laughs> you know, so that's awesome. <laughs> Go ahead. I'm sorry. No problem. Uh People don't need to learn things until they need them in their lives. Um, of course, you need to learn how to do basic math. Of course, you need to learn how to write, um, write neatly and read. But that stuff really doesn't take long to learn, and especially if it's presented in an appealing way. So, for example, when, you know, as a young child, uh, when my mom taught me how to read when I was homeschooled and uh, read really well, we read like stories of you know the great americans and stories in american history and uh, uh old poems and everything like that which was really cool and that was appealing to me so although i didn't necessarily love to learn to read i loved the material that i was reading about and i wanted to learn more about it well how could i do that i needed to read it so uh that's just yeah there's that and um yeah absolutely you don't need to learn something until you need it Absolutely. I, I mean, I would agree with that. Like you said, there's some core things that, that are the exception to that because you're going to need it. Um, but it, it, otherwise, like, uh, you know, I look at algebra. I, I did okay in algebra. I really hated it. Um, I use a lot of algebra in business planning and economic models today within Excel. But the, the algebraic concepts that are necessary to do that, I could teach a person with no knowledge of algebra how to do them in an hour. Yeah. In an hour. 
it's actually more important to know how to then take those and plop them into Excel because if you put the right data in when it comes to financial modeling, Excel never lies. Mm -hmm. right? So when I learned how to use Excel was when I went into the, the, the business world and I needed to know if I was screwing something up. And so it didn't cost me money. Didn't take long to figure out, and we didn't even have YouTube back then. I'm old, right? So, <laughs> so I mean, if you if I could do that back then, you know, basically using the help function inside Excel, then then a person today can find some 14 year old kid that's already an Excel ninja on YouTube to walk them through those basic things, and that kid will make money from digital sharecropping with YouTube while that's going on. It's It, the world is so fantastically different than it was even 25 years ago. Um, it, it's hard to believe that we haven't even tried to adapt education to it. Again, I'm back to, though, because it's an industry. You know, you make money selling textbooks. That, I mean, that's a, that's, you want to make money as a college professor, write a textbook. No kidding. You know? So can we talk a little bit more, then, from your opinion? Why does your success at school not define your success in life or as a person? Hmm. Great, great question. Well, I know people, for example, who uh, I have a, a friend who uh, – an adult friend obviously who is um, a friend of my family. He's a doctor, uh, owns 50 clinics throughout the United States, chiropractor, highly successful, very, very wealthy man. He got a 2.5, I believe he told me, grade point average all throughout high school. So – Uh, from a standard of his teachers, he did not do well in school, but you look at his beautiful family, you look at, you know, the lives he's been able to touch through his clinics and healing people and the monies he's been able to make, and he is very, very much a successful person. So you can bomb school, you can fail school, and you can, and then you can end up being super successful in the real world. Um, or you can do very well at school and graduate and become broke and get into bad things. So school is really arbitrary when it comes to real life. I like to say that school is not real life. It is a fake, made-up game that children are forced to comply with uh, in that they are forced to learn what somebody else would have them learn. Well, you know, I read an article not long ago on valedictorians, a study done on, you know, like 5,000 valedictorians. Mm. And all of them that they, they pulled into the study, every single one of them you would have called successful. They had a, a good job and a good income. None of them were CEOs. None of them were, you know, multimillionaire entrepreneurs. None of them invented the next, you know, the next uh, iPhone. None of them did anything that you would look at and say was stupendous, amazing. They had, you know, they were a chemist that worked for a company and they had a six-figure income, but and, and that might be success to them. But my point is, none of them were people that changed the trajectory of society. None of them were a Steve Jobs. None of them were a Bill Gates. None of them were even the owner of. There wasn't one out of the five thousands. I actually found that crazy. That was a that was a true entrepreneur. They had never none of them had ever signed the front side of a paycheck, mm -hmm. and, and that is telling. And there's plenty of people that went through the school path that, that did those things, right? But the people that were the best at it were so good at conforming that even when they left, they con continued conforming. So they go through a professional path based on conforming. So they might do well. They might move to upper management or something like that, but they never end up running a company. Yeah.
Yeah, and, and for example, like PhDs, why so many people nowadays, uh, well, not tons and tons, but a fair amount, why people are becoming PhDs today is absolutely beyond me. You do not need to go to school for eight plus years to be able to teach something. Um, I've never went to college and, you know, I could teach you how to do many different things via a YouTube video or a class or uh, a course, what have you. So it's just a, you know, why, why people are becoming PhDs, why people feel they need all of these, I guess, credentials to teach something is, utterly pointless and one thing that i have done before i started my podcast and i highly encourage young people to do if they have the opportunity and the opportunity is really everywhere you just have to look for it is apprenticeships learn a trade and you can take that trade anywhere with you and you will never you know you will never be poor uh learn how to become sounds ridiculous it's absolutely true a plumber a welder a roofer what have you um because although you've never gone to school you do have experience and that is what in this economy i truly believe companies care about most yeah absolutely what can you do you're seeing a lot of companies now saying they don't care about degrees anymore uh you're seeing some learning institutions launching what they're calling nano degrees so you know google needs a a, a group of coders that can code a specific language They don't care if you have early French literature in your, your background. They don't care about all of the, the crap over four years. So, you know, some of these the traditional education centers are rolling out six-month programs that basically is like a, a six months of boot camp on this particular technology because that's what Google or Microsoft or whatever wants. And so even the institutions themselves are beginning to have to adapt. I personally think if I was a... If I was a 60-year-old professor in college today, I wouldn't be too concerned. If I was a new 30-year-old uh, professor in college today, I would be highly concerned about my future if I was going to stick to you know, old trusty buildings. Because I think, and I, I've been told I'm wrong about this, but I believe over the next decade you're going to start to see some of these old institutions, if not closing all their doors, you know, shutting down all these expensive buildings because the student population is going to diminish. Yes. I, yes. I don't see how it doesn't. Same here. Yeah, it's all about supply and demand. You know, more and more, uh, well, more and more people are starting their own businesses, which is awesome. Um, and we're really, you know, seeing a lot of outsourcing, a lot of, um, you know, biz, small business owners, big business owners. Uh, there's really not really, there's, I mean, for number one, and this is very obvious, number one, there's no factory jobs. There's not a great amount of factory jobs left in the United States. We're mainly a service economy. So again, learning trades, learning how to fix people's crap, how to unplug their toilets, how to, you know, become an electrician, turn the lights on. Uh, so learning a trade is something that I would absolutely recommend. And yeah, I agree with everything you said. Yeah, I, I, I think that that is kind of the, the trajectory we're on because we're, we're making mass customized learning scalable to yeah. where you can learn anything you want. We have that long tail of information out there. Um, and all of this leads, of course, to the reason we do all this stuff, the reason we tell kids they need to go to school is so they can become successful. What is your definition of success as a young person today? Oh, great question. It is absolutely different for every single person. My definition of success uh, for my own life is totally different from somebody else, a different 17-year-old's definition of success for their life. I think that if you are doing what you love to do, 
and you feel good about that and you are achieving what you want to do, then that is success. But so many people who are in school don't have the ability to do that. Like you wake up at, you know, 6.30, a.m., you're shipped off to school, you're there for eight, nine hours a day, you come home, you can't even spend time with your family, let alone work on what you want to do because you have to do homework and prepare for school the next day. And it's just a vicious annual cycle. So I think that you're successful if you're doing what you love to do. Um, I consider myself successful because I get to share my passion of history with people and I've, you know, gotten to do some really cool things because of it. And it's just so exciting. And I don't say that, you know, to brag in any way. I say it because I think that Every single young person has unlimited potential. This is the age of the internet for goodness sake and you can be successful in your own right making money and just doing what you love in no matter what that may be. And, and that doesn't mean that you just – because you're doing what you love, you're going to make money. You also have to figure out the revenue model. Yes. You know, I tell people when they, when they podcast, they're like, well, if I'm going to start a podcast, should I do a revenue model like yours? And my answer is maybe. Why yeah. don't you build an audience – And then structure your revenue model over, around what you've built because neither you nor I know what you're going to build yet. Yes. You might, you know, you might become an author and sell books because of your podcast. Your podcast might actually be about something that you're really passionate about, but maybe there's a product attached to it. Uh, maybe it is a membership and rev revenue model. Like, I mean, it, it all depends on what works best for you and what works best for your audience. But I think you can find that success in anything. It maybe it's not a podcast. Maybe it's you know maybe it's some other form of content creation. Maybe it's being a skilled artisan. I mean, there are so many things. Um, you know, I've got a, a guy that works with us here, with Patrick Patrick Roman, that does uh, custom knives with empty knives, and he's kind of taken to a full time thing. But I know a lot of custom knife makers. They just crank out ten knives a month, and they have a Facebook page, and they put them all on there, and they sell them all. Now, yeah. they maybe are not making a full-time income, but they're making a solid side hustle income that they might choose to take there. There, there is literally limitless opportunities today, and the more we get into a, a punch stamp 3D printer world, you know, everybody can have everything they want. All of a sudden, everybody wants something a little bit unique, a little bit different, and that only expands those opportunities. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. And again, it just like, just for example, so on my podcast, uh, the history of Vikings, we talk a lot about Norse mythology. Like it's, it's crazy that I'll be writing a book, which I know will be successful because I've talked to many people about it, about Norse mythology. Um, that like, it's, it's crazy that literally thousands of people are so interested in that and I can capitalize on their interests and somebody who's also interested in it myself and I can create a product because of it. Um, it, it, there's just, you have to find like your niche, you know, you hear that all the time, but it's, it's really true and that could be anything. For example, like I've started collecting, you know, old historic metal painted toy soldiers. I just love doing that. And who knew there was a niche for that? You know, uh, there's literally a niche for everything, no matter what it may be. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with that. So let's talk a little bit more about your podcast as we wrap up here. Tell people like kind of what is your what is your, your your publishing schedule and what are some of the things that you talk about? I know it's 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 Vikings and Norse mythology, but give us a few examples of some things that you discuss. 
Yeah, absolutely. So my podcast, The History of Vikings, is seven months old, and it's a discussion-based podcast. Every episode features an interview with, most of the time, a world-class scholar, maybe from Oxford. I have professors from Oxford, Harvard, Yale University on regularly, also authors of cool Viking novels and uh, people of – I've I'm going to be interviewing someone tomorrow who is um, part of a very popular European sort of Viking metal band, which is really cool, um, that draws on the stories of Norse mythology that they incorporate into their music. Um, so we basically on my show, it's a history podcast. We explore all aspects of the Viking age. You know, what was daily life like during the Viking age, um, talking about the timeless stories in Norse mythology. So that's what we do. Uh, I'll also be releasing another history podcast in actually a few weeks about World War II, where it'll be kind of the same thing, and we'll uh, be exploring different characters in World War II and the battles and the tanks and the armor and the weapons. So yeah, people seem to really like it, and I have so much fun doing it. Awesome. And And where can people find that? Uh, the History of Vikings podcast, you can find it wherever you listen to your podcasts, or you can uh, feel free to get in touch on my website, which is thehistoryofvikings.com. And I'll make sure I have links to uh, your website and your social media stuff today so people can awesome. connect with you. Noah, man, thanks for being with us today. This was a great interview. Uh, I'm really happy to see the success that you're having already, and I really hope that people see that as an example uh, that they can do it too. And I know we were kind of directing this toward younger people today, but I think one of the big problems I see in the world are people like, well, you know, I'm I'm 40 now and I'm set my ways or whatever. You can learn this stuff. You can do whatever it is that you want to do. Um, I was highly successful uh, at, at what I was doing when I was 36 years old, 10 years ago when I started this show. But I also got to where I hated it. And I just mm -hmm. decided to do something else. And I think you've always been able to do that in some way throughout history. But I don't think there's ever been a time where there's as much opportunity to do it as today. And, and I believe if our great-grandparents were still around, uh, they'd be kicking some asses right now. Because they'd be like, what is wrong with you? You know, Imagine yeah. your great-great-grandfather that was you know, shoeing horses or something for a living yeah. his whole life, did apprentice for five years before he was considered a good enough blacksmith to shoe horses on his own. Mm -hmm. And... You showed him YouTube and told him, well, I can't find a job. I think he'd whoop your ass. <laughs> I think you'd end up with a horseshoe tacked to your ass. I really do. I you know, I mean, why, why, what are you doing? You know, it's, it's, it's unbelievable the opportunity that's squandered today, man. So, so thanks for being an example of proving that. And thanks for being with us today on the show. And, uh, man, if you want to come back again sometime, you know what to do, man. Fill out the guest form. Dorothy will get in touch with you, and you'll br we'll bring you back around. Thanks so much for having me, Jack. It was really an honor to be with you. And uh, for all you young people listening, I really wish you the best. And, Jack, God bless you and keep up the good work. All right, guys, great interview with a really cool kid, man. I, I, I'm, I'm impressed with this young man. You want to you know, go ahead and make sure you check out his podcast. And, uh, and you got to support young people like this when they're doing cool stuff. And uh, definitely had some really interesting things to say today. Um As we finish off this episode of the podcast, I want to remind you guys, if you love this podcast and you want to support the work that we do so we can continue to bring you information and great guests like we did today, you can just do your online shopping at tspaz.com. All you got to do uh, when you go online to shop, just go to tspaz.com first and check out what we have uh, posted there in our reviews. Uh, get on over, check out the deals of the day on Amazon. As long as you go there, 
first, you're going to end up helping to support the work that we do at the Survival Podcast. Uh, today's uh, item of the day is one I brought around a couple times before. It's a time of year to start thinking about it. And it's one of those tools that you need in your life. And when you buy this tool, you want to buy a buy once, cry once. You want to spend a little more money and get something that you never have to replace again for the rest of your life. Uh, this is for pruning. This is your hand pruners. And I recommend the Felco F2 hand pruner. Uh, if you buy that tool... As long as you take care of it, don't leave it sitting out in the rain or something like I occasionally do with my tools, you will never have to buy another one for the rest of your life. It is that quality of a tool. If you talk to people that run nurseries for a living and you ask them what they use in their pruning, they all use Felcos. Uh, so it's definitely what you want to look at. If you are a smaller-handed person, they are. it is a full-sized pruner. Felco also makes the F6, which is a little bit, it's basically just scaled down a little bit. I don't personally like it because as you're pruning bigger branches, having that where you can back off and get a little more leverage with the longer handles, I like that in the F6. But uh, I'm sorry, in the F2. But if you if you have smaller hands or maybe you want a set of each, uh, the F2 is worth looking at. If you if you really can't bring yourself to spend 50 bucks on the Felco tool, uh, I will give you my number two pick. It is in my article. It would be either the Corona 6250 at 28 bucks. Or the Corona 7100D at about 20. Those are good tools, but I'm, I'm guaranteeing you, long term, you'd be better off with the Falcos. But sometimes we have to make decisions. And if, you know, here I'm gonna say the other thing too. Let's say you have four or five trees that you prune, and that's all you do every year. Get the Coronas. If you have 20, 30 trees that you're gonna be pruning, pruning is an ongoing, constant thing for you. Get the Felco. Spend the extra money. You will not regret it. Uh, they are just the best pruners on the market. You can find them at tspaz.com. You can just go to the survivalpodcast.com and scroll down to see our latest reviews. Uh, either way, you help support the show. And remember, you guys with mobile devices, if you don't have us bookmarked or something and you want to get over to our site, we have a short domain that you can type less when, you, when you're entering you know, a website address. It's just tspc.co, tspc.co. That'll bring you over to survivalpodcast.com. You can find all of our good stuff there. With that, let's talk about the song of the day today. The song of the day today is pretty fitting for Halloween, which is why we have Alice Cooper Week. The song is called The Sound of A. The Sound of A was the first song that Alice Cooper wrote entirely on his own. He wrote it all the way back in 1967, And it was forgotten until Dennis Dunaway, the original bass guitarist for Alice Cooper Band from 1969 to 74, rediscovered a demo and played it to Alice, after which the two of them updated the tune and recorded it for the Paranormal album, uh, then releasing that in 2017. So this seems like a really new song, but yet it is a song that's over 50 years old. Um, the concept of this song, if you don't really get it, It doesn't make as much. It has this eerie, creepy, Halloween-y thing. That's why we picked it for today. But the sound of A is about the musical note A. And when Alice wrote this, he had this concept of like this, this, this movie or video or something where they piped music in every home. And the sound of A was used to control you. And they could turn it up or down, change it to A minor to change your mood. And they would use the sound of music to control you. It'd be a low key in the background that would kind of go away like white noise, but it would be there, and they would use it to control you. You know, it makes me think of Kurt Vonnegut's um, 
uh, uh, novel that was later made into a pretty cool movie by Showtime, uh, Harrison Bergeron, where everybody wore a little band around their head that controlled them. But in that case, it was meant to dumb them down and make everybody equal. But it's still a mechanism of control. And so what makes those things, like this music being used to control your mind... Uh, or a, a radio band around your head to dumb you down so you're as dumb as all the other dumb zombies, reach in and make you feel a little uncomfortable. Because it's exactly what the media does. That's why they call it programming. Piped into every house. Now piped into every set of ears in America. The mainstream media seeking to control you. Well... The good news is, by listening to podcasts like this, you can break that echo chamber and get into a world of free thinking with people like our guests today, and great music, like this creepy song. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Keep you.